Chapter Four of a Sicilian Romance by Anne Radcliffe. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Four The nuptial morn, so justly dreaded by Julia and so impatiently awaited by the Marquis, now arrived. The marriage was to be celebrated with a magnificence which demonstrated the joy it occasioned to the Marquis. The castle was fitted up in a style of grandeur superior to anything that had been before seen in it. The neighboring nobility were invited to an entertainment which was to conclude with a splendid ball and supper, and the gates were to be thrown open to all who chose to partake of the bounty of the Marquis. At an early hour the Duke, attended by a numerous retinue, entered the castle. Ferdinand heard from his dungeon where the rigor and the policy of the Marquis still confined him, the loud clattering of hoofs in the courtyard above, the rolling of the carriage-wheels, and all the tumultuous bustle which the entrance of the duke occasioned. He too well understood the cause of this uproar, and it awakened in him sensations resembling those which the condemned criminal feels when his ears are assailed by the dreadful sounds that precede his execution. When he was able to think of himself, he wondered by what means the Marquis would reconcile his absence to the guests. He, however, knew too well the dissipated character of the Sicilian nobility to doubt that whatever story should be invented would be very readily believed by them, who, even if they knew the truth, would not suffer a discovery of their knowledge to interrupt the festivity which was offered them. The Marquis and Marchioness received the Duke in the outer hall, and conducted him to the saloon, where he partook of the refreshments prepared for him, and from thence retired to the chapel. The Marquis now withdrew to lead Julia to the altar, and Amelia was ordered to attend at the door of the chapel, in which the priest and a numerous company were already assembled. The Marchioness, a prey to the turbulence of succeeding passions, exulted in the near completion of her favorite scheme. A disappointment, however, was prepared for her, which would at once crush the triumph of her malice and her pride. The Marquis, on entering the prison of Julia, found it empty. His astonishment and indignation upon the discovery almost overpowered his reason. Of the servants in the castle, who were immediately summoned, he inquired concerning her escape, with a mixture of fury and sorrow which left them no opportunity to reply. They had, however, no information to give, but that her woman had not appeared during the whole morning. In the prison were found the bridal habiliments which the Marchioness herself had sent on the preceding night, together with a letter addressed to Amelia, which contained the following words. Adieu, dear Amelia. Never more will you see your wretched sister, who flies from the cruel fate now prepared for her certain that she can never meet one more dreadful. In happiness or misery, in hope or despair, whatever may be your situation, still remember me with pity and affection. Dear Amelia, adieu. You will always be the sister of my heart. May you never be the partner of my misfortunes. While the Marquis was reading this letter, the Marchioness, who supposed the delay occasioned by some opposition from Julia, flew to the apartment. By her orders, all the habitable parts of the castle were explored, and she herself assisted in the search. At length, the intelligence was communicated to the chapel, 
and the confusion became universal. The priests quitted the altar, and the company returned to the saloon. The letter, when it was given to Amelia, excited emotions which she found it impossible to disguise, but which did not, however, protect her from a suspicion that she was concerned in the transaction, her knowledge of which this letter appeared intended to conceal. The Marquis immediately dispatched servants upon the fleetest horses of his stables, with directions to take different routes, and to scour every corner of the island in pursuit of the fugitives. When these exertions had somewhat quieted his mind, he began to consider by what means Julia could have effected her escape. She had been confined in a small room in a remote part of the castle, to which no person had been admitted but her own woman and Robert, the confidential servant of the Marquis. Even Lisette had not been suffered to enter, unless accompanied by Robert, in whose room, since the night of the fatal discovery, the keys had been regularly deposited. Without them it was impossible she could have escaped, the windows of the apartment being barred and grated, and opening into an inner court, at a prodigious height from the ground. Besides, who could she depend upon for protection, or whither could she intend to fly for concealment? The associates of her former elopement were utterly unable to assist her even with advice. Ferdinand, himself a prisoner, had been deprived of any means of intercourse with her, and Hippolytus had been carried lifeless on board a vessel, which had immediately sailed for Italy. Robert, to whom the keys had been entrusted, was severely interrogated by the Marquis. He persisted in a simple and uniform declaration of his innocence, but as the Marquis believed it impossible that Julia could have escaped without his knowledge, he was ordered into imprisonment till he should confess the fact. The pride of the Duke was severely wounded by this elopement, which proved the excess of Julia's aversion, and completed the disgraceful circumstances of his rejection. The Marquis had carefully concealed from him her prior attempt at elopement, and her consequent confinement, but the truth now burst from disguise, and stood revealed with bitter aggravation. The Duke, fired with indignation at the duplicity of the Marquis, poured forth his resentment in terms of proud and bitter invective, and the Marquis, galled by recent disappointment, was in no mood to restrain the impetuosity of his nature. He retorted with acrimony, and the consequence would have been serious had not the friends of each party interposed for their preservation. The disputants were at length reconciled. It was agreed to pursue Julia with united and indefatigable search, and that, whenever she should be found, the nuptials should be solemnized without further delay. With the character of the Duke, this conduct was consistent. His passions, inflamed by disappointment and strengthened by repulse, now defied the power of obstacle, and those considerations which would have operated with a more delicate mind to overcome its original inclination, served only to increase the violence of his. Madame de Menon, who loved Julia with maternal affection, was an interested observer of all that passed at the castle. The cruel fate to which the Marquis destined his daughter she had severely lamented, yet she could hardly rejoice to find that this had been avoided by elopement. She trembled for the future safety of her pupil, and her tranquillity which was thus 
first disturbed for the welfare of others, she was not soon suffered to recover. The Marchioness had long nourished a secret dislike to Madame de Menon, whose virtues were a silent reproof to her vices. The contrariety of their disposition created in the Marchioness an aversion which would have amounted to contempt had not that dignity of virtue which strongly characterized the manners of Madame compelled the former to fear what she wished to despise. Her conscience whispered her that the dislike was mutual, and she now rejoiced in the opportunity which seemed to offer itself of lowering the proud integrity of Madame's character. Pretending, therefore, to believe that she had encouraged Ferdinand to disobey his father's commands, and had been accessory to the elopement, she accused her of these offenses, and stimulated the Marquis to reprehend her conduct. But the integrity of Madame de Menon was not to be questioned with impunity. Without deigning to answer the imputation, she desired to resign an office of which she was no longer considered worthy, and to quit the castle immediately. This the policy of the Marquis would not suffer, and he was compelled to make such ample concessions to Madame as induced her for the present to continue at the castle. The news of Julia's elopement at length reached the ears of Ferdinand, whose joy at this event was equalled only by his surprise. He lost for a moment the sense of his own situation, and thought only of the escape of Julia. But his sorrow soon returned with accumulated force when he recollected that Julia might then perhaps want that assistance which his confinement alone could prevent his affording her. The servants, who had been sent in pursuit, returned to the castle without any satisfactory information. Week after week elapsed in fruitless search, yet the duke was strenuous in continuing the pursuit. Emissaries were dispatched to Naples and to the several estates of the Count Veriza, but they returned without any satisfactory information. The Count had not been heard of since he quitted Naples for Sicily. During these enquiries, a new subject of disturbance broke out in the castle of Mazzini. On the night so fatal to the hopes of Hippolytus and Julia, when the tumult was subsided and all was still, a light was observed by a servant, as he passed by the window of the great staircase in the way to his chamber, to glimmer through the casement before noticed in the southern buildings. While he stood observing it, it vanished and presently reappeared, the former mysterious circumstances relative to these buildings rushed upon his mind, and fired with wonder, he roused some of his fellow-servants to come and behold the phenomenon. As they gazed in silent terror, the light disappeared, and soon after they saw a small door belonging to the south tower open, and a figure bearing a light issue forth, which, gliding along the castle walls, was quickly lost to their view. Overcome with fear, they hurried back to their chambers, and revolved all the late wonderful occurrences. They doubted not that this was the figure formerly seen by the Lady Julia. The sudden change of Madame de Menon's apartments had not passed unobserved by the servants, but they now no longer hesitated to what to attribute the removal. They collected each various and uncommon circumstance attendant on this part of the fabric, and comparing them with the present, their superstitious fears were confirmed, and their terror heightened to such a degree 
that many of them resolved to quit the service of the Marquis. The Marquis, surprised at this sudden desertion, inquired into its cause, and learned the truth. Shocked by this discovery, he yet resolved to prevent, if possible, the ill effects which might be expected from a circulation of the report. To this end it was necessary to quiet the minds of his people, and to prevent their quitting his service. Having severely reprehended them for the idle apprehension they encouraged, he told them that, to prove the fallacy of their surmises, he would lead them over that part of the castle which was the subject of their fears, and ordered them to attend him at the return of night in the north hall. Amelia and Madame de Menon, surprised at this procedure, awaited the issue in silent expectation. The servants, in obedience to the commands of the Marquis, assembled at night in the north hall. The air of desolation which reigned through the south buildings, and the circumstance of their having been for so many years shut up, would naturally tend to inspire awe. But to these people, who firmly believed them to be the haunt of an unquiet spirit, terror was the predominant sentiment. The Marquis now appeared with the keys of these buildings in his hands, and every heart thrilled with wild expectation. He ordered Robert to precede him with a torch, and the rest of the servants followed. He passed on. A pair of iron gates were unlocked, and they proceeded through a court, whose pavement was wildly overgrown with long grass, to the great door of the south fabric. Here they met with some difficulty, for the lock, which had not been turned for many years, was rusted. During this interval the silence of expectation sealed the lips of all present. At length the lock yielded. That door, which had not been passed for so many years, creaked heavily upon its hinges, and disclosed the hall of black marble which Ferdinand had formerly crossed. "'Now,' cried the Marquis, in a tone of irony as he entered, "'expect to encounter the ghosts of which you tell me, but if you fail to conquer them, prepare to quit my service. The people who live with me shall at least have courage and ability sufficient to defend me from these spiritual attacks. All I apprehend is that the enemy will not appear, and in this case your valor will go untried.' No one dared to answer, but all followed in silent fear the Marquis, who ascended the great staircase and entered the gallery. "'Unlock that door,' said he, pointing to one on the left, "'and we will soon unhouse these ghosts.' Robert applied the key, but his hand shook so violently that he could not turn it. "'Here is a fellow,' cried the Marquis, "'fit to encounter a whole legion of spirits.' Do you, Anthony, take the key and try your valor? Please you, my lord, replied Anthony. I never was a good one at unlocking a door in my life, but here is Gregory will do it. No, my lord, and please you, said Gregory. Here is Richard. Stand off, said the Marquis. I will shame your cowardice and do it myself. Saying this, he turned the key and was rushing on, but the door refused to yield. It shook under his hands, and seemed as if partially held by some person on the other side. The Marquis was surprised, and made several efforts to move it without effect. He then ordered his servants to burst it open, but shrinking back with one accord, they cried, "'For God's sake, my lord, go no farther. We are satisfied here are no ghosts, 
Only let us get back.' "'It is now then my turn to be satisfied,' replied the Marquis. "'Until I am, not one of you shall stir. Open me that door.' "'My lord!' "'Nay,' said the Marquis, assuming a look of stern authority, "'dispute not my commands. I am not to be trifled with.' They now stepped forward and applied their strength to the door, when a loud and sudden noise burst from within, and resounded through the hollow chambers. The men started back in a fright, and were rushing headlong down the staircase, when the voice of the Marquis arrested their flight.' they returned with hearts palpitating with terror. "'Observe what I say,' said the Marquis, "'and behave like men. Yonder door,' pointing to one at some distance, "'will lead us through other rooms to this chamber. Unlock it, therefore, for I will know the cause of these sounds.' Shocked at this determination, the servants again supplicated the Marquis to go no farther, and to be obeyed he was obliged to exert all his authority. The door was opened and discovered a long, narrow passage, into which they descended by a few steps. It led to a gallery that terminated in a back staircase where several doors appeared, one of which the Marquis unclosed. A spacious chamber appeared beyond, whose walls, decayed and discolored by the damps, exhibited a melancholy proof of desertion. They passed on through a long suite of lofty and noble apartments, which were in the same ruinous condition. At length they came to the chamber whence the noise had issued. "'Go first, Robert, with the light,' said the Marquis, as they approached the door. "'This is the key.' Robert trembled but obeyed, and the other servants followed in silence. They stopped a moment at the door to listen, but all was still within." The door was opened and disclosed a large vaulted chamber, nearly resembling those they had passed, and on looking round they discovered at once the cause of the alarm. A part of the decayed roof was fallen in, and the stones and rubbish of the ruin falling against the gallery door obstructed the passage. It was evident, too, whence the noise which occasioned their terror had arisen. The loose stones, which were piled against the door, being shook by the effort made to open it, had given way and rolled to the floor. After surveying the place, they returned to the back stairs, which they descended, and having pursued the several windings of a long passage, found themselves again in the marble hall. "'Now,' said the Marquis, "'what think you? What evil spirits infest these walls?' Henceforth be cautious how ye credit the phantasms of idleness, for ye may not always meet with a master who will condescend to undeceive ye. They acknowledged the goodness of the Marquis, and professing themselves perfectly conscious of the error of their former suspicions, desired they might search no farther. I choose to leave nothing to your imagination, replied the Marquis, lest hereafter it should betray you into a similar error. Follow me, therefore, you shall see the whole of these buildings. Saying this, he led them to the south tower. They remembered that from a door of this tower the figure which caused their alarm had issued, and notwithstanding the late assertion of their suspicions being removed, fear still operated powerfully upon their minds, and they would willingly have been excused from farther research. Would any of you choose to explore this tower? 
said the Marquis, pointing to the broken staircase. For myself, I am mortal, and therefore fear to venture. But you, who hold communion with disembodied spirits, may partake something of their nature. If so, you may pass without apprehension, where the ghost has probably passed before. They shrunk at this reproof, and were silent. The Marquis, turning to a door on his right hand, ordered it to be unlocked. It opened upon the country, and the servants knew it to be the same whence the figure had appeared. Having relocked it, "'Lift that trap-door. We will descend into the vaults,' said the Marquis. "'What trap-door, my lord?' said Robert, with an increased agitation. "'I see none.' The Marquis pointed, and Robert perceived a door which lay almost concealed beneath the stones that had fallen from the staircase above. He began to remove them when the Marquis suddenly turning. "'I have already sufficiently indulged your folly,' said he, "'and am weary of this business. "'If you are capable of receiving conviction from truth, "'you must now be convinced that these buildings "'are not the haunt of a supernatural being. "'And if you are incapable, "'it would be entirely useless to proceed. "'You, Robert, may therefore spare yourself the trouble "'of removing the rubbish.' We will quit this part of the fabric. The servants joyfully obeyed, and the Marquis, locking the several doors, returned with the keys to the habitable part of the castle. Every enquiry after Julia had hitherto proved fruitless, and the imperious nature of the Marquis, heightened by the present vexation, became intolerably oppressive to all around him. As the hope of recovering Julia declined, his opinion that Amelia had assisted her to escape strengthened, and he inflicted upon her the severity of his unjust suspicions. She was ordered to confine herself to her apartment till her innocence should be cleared, or her sister discovered. From Madame de Menon she received a faithful sympathy, which was the sole relief of her oppressed heart. Her anxiety concerning Julia daily increased, and was heightened into the most terrifying apprehensions for her safety. She knew of no person in whom her sister could confide, or of any place where she could find protection. The most deplorable evils were therefore to be expected. One day, as she was sitting at the window of her apartment, engaged in melancholy reflection, she saw a man riding towards the castle on full speed. Her heart beat with fear and expectation, for her haste made her suspect he brought intelligence of Julia, and she could scarcely refrain from breaking through the command of the Marquis and rushing into the hall to learn something of his errand. She was right in her conjecture. The person she had seen was a spy of the Marquis, and came to inform him that the Lady Julia was at that time concealed in a cottage of the forest of Marentino. The Marquis rejoiced at this intelligence, gave the man a liberal reward. He learned also that she was accompanied by a young cavalier, which circumstance surprised him exceedingly, for he knew of no person except the Count de Veriza with whom she could have entrusted herself, and the Count had fallen by his sword. He immediately ordered a party of his people to accompany the messenger to the forest of Marentino, and to suffer neither Julia nor the cavalier to escape them on pain of death. When the Duke de Leovo was informed of this discovery, he entreated and obtained permission of the Marquis to join in the pursuit. He immediately set out on the expedition, armed and followed by a number of his servants. 
he resolved to encounter all hazards and to practice the most desperate extremes rather than fail in the object of his enterprise in a short time he overtook the marquis's people and they proceeded together with all possible speed the forest lay several leagues distant from the castle of mazzini and the day was closing when they entered upon the borders the thick foliage of the trees spread a deeper shade around and they were obliged to proceed with caution darkness had long fallen upon the earth when they reached the cottage to which they were directed by a light that glimmered from afar among the trees the duke left his people at some distance and dismounted and accompanied only by one servant approached the cottage when he reached it he stopped and looking through the window observed a man and woman in the habit of peasants seated at their supper they were conversing with earnestness and the duke hoping to obtain further intelligence of julia endeavored to listen to their discourse they were praising the beauty of a lady whom the duke did not doubt to be julia and the woman spoke much in praise of the cavalier he has a noble heart said she and i am sure by his look belongs to some great family nay replied her companion the lady is as good as he i have been at palermo and ought to know what great folks are and if she is not one of them never take my word again poor thing how she does take on it made my heart ache to see her they were some time silent the duke knocked at the door and inquired of the man who opened it concerning the lady and cavalier then in his cottage he was assured there were no other persons in the cottage than those he then saw the duke persisted in affirming that the persons he inquired for were there concealed which the man being as resolute in denying he gave the signal and his people approached and surrounded the cottage the peasants terrified by this circumstance confessed that a lady and cavalier such as the duke described had been for some time concealed in the cottage but that they were now departed suspicious of the truth of the latter assertion the duke ordered his people to search the cottage and that part of the forest contiguous to it the search ended in disappointment the duke however resolved to obtain all possible information concerning the fugitives and assuming therefore a stern air bade the peasant on pain of instant death discover all he knew of them the man replied that on a very dark and stormy night about a week before two persons had come to the cottage and desired shelter that they were unattended but seemed to be persons of consequence in disguise that they paid very liberally for what they had and that they departed from the cottage a few hours before the arrival of the duke the duke inquired concerning the course they had taken and having received information remounted his horse and set forward in pursuit the road lay for several leagues through the forest and the darkness and the probability of encountering banditti made the journey dangerous about the break of day they quitted the forest and entered upon a wild and mountainous country in which they travelled some miles without perceiving a hut or a human being no vestige of cultivation appeared and no sounds reached them but those of their horses feet and the roaring of the winds through the deep forests that overhung the mountains the pursuit was uncertain but the duke resolved to persevere they came at length to a cottage where he repeated his enquiries 
and learned to his satisfaction that two persons, such as he described, had stopped there for refreshment about two hours before. He found it now necessary to stop for the same purpose. Bread and milk, the only provisions of the place, were set before him, and his attendants would have been well contented had there been sufficient of this homely fare to have satisfied their hunger. Having dispatched an hasty meal, they again sat forward in the way pointed out to them as the route of the fugitives. The country assumed a more civilized aspect. Corn, vineyards, olives, and groves of mulberry trees adorned the hills. The valleys, luxuriant in shade, were frequently embellished by the windings of a lucid stream and diversified by clusters of half-seen cottages. Here the rising turrets of a monastery appeared above the thick trees with which they were surrounded, and there the savage wilds the travelers had passed formed a bold and picturesque background to the scene. To the questions put by the duke to the several persons he met, he perceived answers that encouraged him to proceed. At noon he halted at a village to refresh himself and his people. He could gain no intelligence of Julia, and was perplexed which way to choose, but determined at length to pursue the road he was then in, and accordingly again set forward. He traveled several miles without meeting any person who could give the necessary information, and began to despair of success. The lengthened shadows of the mountains and the fading light gave signals of declining day, which having gained the pursuit of a high hill, he observed two persons traveling on horseback in the plains below. On one of them he distinguished the habiliments of a woman, and in her air he thought he discovered that of Julia. While he stood attentively surveying them, they looked towards the hill, when, as if urged by a sudden impulse of terror, they set off on full speed over the plains. The duke had no doubt that these were the persons he sought, and he therefore ordered some of his people to pursue them, and pushed his horse into a full gallop. Before he reached the plains, the fugitives, winding round an abrupt hill, were lost to his view. The duke continued his course, and his people were a considerable way before him, at length reached the hill, behind which the two persons had disappeared. No traces of them were to be seen, and they entered a narrow defile between two ranges of high and savage mountains on the right of which a rapid stream rolled along, and broke with its deep-resounding murmurs the solemn silence of the place. The shades of evening now fell thick, and the scene was soon enveloped in darkness. But to the duke, who was animated by a strong and impetuous passion, these were unimportant circumstances. Although he knew that the wilds of Sicily were frequently infested with banditti, his numbers made him fearless of attack. Not so his attendants, many of whom, as the darkness increased, testified emotions not very honorable to their courage, starting at every bush and believing it concealed a murderer. They endeavored to dissuade the duke from proceeding, expressing uncertainty of their being in the right route, and recommending the open plains. But the duke, whose eye had been vigilant to mark the flight of the fugitives, and who was not to be dissuaded from his purpose, quickly repressed their arguments. They continued their course without meeting a single person. The moon now rose and afforded them a shadowy, imperfect view of the surrounding objects. The prospect was gloomy and vast, 
and not a human habitation met their eyes. They had now lost every trace of the fugitives, and found themselves bewildered in a wild and savage country. Their only remaining care was to extricate themselves from so forlorn a situation, and they listened at every step with anxious attention for some sound that might discover to them the haunts of men. They listened in vain. The stillness of night was undisturbed but by the wind, which broke at intervals in low and hollow murmurs from across the mountains. As they proceeded with silent caution, they perceived a light break from among the rocks at some distance. The duke hesitated whether to approach, since it might probably proceed from a party of the banditti with which these mountains were said to be infested. While he hesitated, it disappeared, but he had not advanced many steps when it returned. He now perceived it to issue from the mouth of a cavern, and cast a bright reflection upon the overhanging rocks and shrubs. He dismounted and followed by two of his people, leaving the rest at some distance, moved with slow and silent steps towards the cave. As he drew near, he heard the sound of many voices in high carousel. Suddenly the uproar ceased, and the following words were sung by a clear and manly voice. Song Pour the rich libation high, the sparkling cup to Bacchus fill. His joys shall dance in every eye, and chase the forms of future ill. Quick the magic raptures steal o'er the fancy-kindling brain. Warm the heart with social zeal, and song and laughter reign. Then visions of pleasure shall float on our sight, while light bounding our spirits shall flow, and the god shall impart a fine sense of delight, which in vain sober mortals would know. The last verse was repeated in loud chorus. The duke listened with astonishment. Such social merriment amid a scene of such savage wildness appeared more like enchantment than reality. He would not have hesitated to pronounce this a party of banditti, had not the delicacy of expression preserved in the song appeared unattainable by men of their class. He had now a full view of the cave, and the moment which convinced him of his error served only to increase his surprise. He beheld, by the light of a fire, a party of banditti seated within the deepest recess of the cave, round a rude kind of table formed in the rock. The table was spread with provisions, and they were regaling themselves with great eagerness and joy. The countenances of the men exhibited a strange mixture of fierceness and sociality, and the duke could almost have imagined he beheld in these robbers a band of the early Romans before knowledge had civilized or luxury had softened them. But he had not much time for meditation. A sense of his danger bade him fly while to fly was yet in his power. As he turned to depart, he observed two saddle-horses grazing upon the herbage near the mouth of the cave. It instantly occurred to him that they belonged to Julia and her companion. He hesitated, and at length determined to linger a while, and listen to the conversation of the robbers, hoping from thence to have his doubts resolved. They talked for some time in a strain of high conviviality, and recounted in exultation many of their exploits. 
They described also the behavior of several people whom they had robbed, with highly ludicrous allusions, and with much rude humor, while the cave re-echoed with loud bursts of laughter and applause. They were thus engaged in tumultuous merriment, till one of them, cursing the scanty plunder of their late adventure, but praising the beauty of a lady, they all lowered their voices together, and seemed as if debating upon a point uncommonly interesting to them. The passions of the duke were roused, and he became certain that it was Julia of whom they had spoken. In the first impulse of feeling he drew his sword, but recollecting the number of his adversaries restrained his fury. He was turning from the cave with the design of summoning his people, when the light of the fire glittering upon the bright blade of his weapon caught the eye of one of the banditti. He started from his seat, and his comrades, instantly rising in consternation, discovered the duke. They rushed with loud vociferation towards the mouth of the cave. He endeavored to escape to his people, but two of the banditti, mounting the horses which were grazing near, quickly overtook and seized him. His dress and air proclaimed him to be a person of distinction, and rejoicing in their prospect of plunder, they forced him towards the cave. Here their comrades awaited them. But what were the emotions of the duke when he discovered in the person of the principal robber his own son, who, to escape the galling severity of his father, had fled from his castle some years before, and had not been heard of since. He had placed himself at the head of a party of banditti, and pleased with the liberty which till then he had never tasted, and with the power which his new situation afforded him, he became so much attached to this wild and lawless mode of life, that he determined never to quit it till death should dissolve those ties which now made his rank only oppressive. This event seemed at so great a distance that he seldom allowed himself to think of it. Whenever it should happen, he had no doubt that he might either resume his rank without danger of discovery, or might justify his present conduct as a frolic which a few acts of generosity would easily excuse. He knew his power would then place him beyond the reach of censure, in a country where the people are accustomed to implicit subordination, and seldom dare to scrutinize the actions of the nobility. His sensations, however, on discovering his father, were not very pleasing, but, proclaiming the duke, he protected him from farther outrage. With the duke, whose heart was a stranger to the softer affections, indignation usurped the place of parental feeling. His pride was the only passion affected by the discovery, and he had the rashness to express the indignation, which the conduct of his son had excited, in terms of unrestrained invective. The banditti, inflamed by the opprobrium with which he loaded their order, threatened instant punishment to his termidity and the authority of Ricardo could hardly restrain them within the limits of forbearance. The menaces and at length entreaties of the duke to prevail with his son to abandon his present way of life were equally ineffectual. Secure in his own power, Ricardo laughed at the first, and was insensible to the latter, and his father was compelled to relinquish the attempt. The duke, however, boldly and passionately accused him of having plundered and secreted a lady and cavalier, his friends, at the same time describing Julia, for whose liberation he offered large rewards. 
Ricardo denied the fact, which so much exasperated the duke, that he drew his sword with an intention of plunging it in the breast of his son. His arm was arrested by the surrounding banditti, who half unsheathed their swords and stood suspended in an attitude of menace. The fate of the father now hung upon the voice of the son. Ricardo raised his arm, but instantly dropped it and turned away. The banditti sheathed their weapons and stepped back. Ricardo, solemnly swearing that he knew nothing of the persons described, the duke at length became convinced of the truth of the assertion, and departing from the cave rejoined his people. All the impetuous passions of his nature were roused and inflamed by the discovery of his son in a situation so wretchedly disgraceful. Yet it was his pride rather than his virtue that was hurt, and when he wished him dead it was rather to save himself from disgrace than his son from the real indignity of vice. He had no means of reclaiming him. To have attempted it by force would have been at this time the excess of terminity, for his attendants, though numerous, were undisciplined and would have fallen a certain victim to the power of a savage and dexterous banditti. With thoughts agitated in fierce and agonizing conflict, he pursued his journey, and having lost all trace of Julia, sought only for an habitation which might shelter him from the night, and afford necessary refreshment for himself and his people. With this, however, there appeared little hope of meeting. End of chapter 4